This is part four of a four parts podcast. You ready to go on to the next the next thing? I am, I am. What's okay, now. Well, we were originally talking about colony collapse disorder. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be the next item. And then you said, okay, we've got to go talk about the different kinds of hives. And um, so I, in the video, I think the point that we drove home was that colony collapse disorder is simply caused by bee stress. And, and frankly, if you're going to take any animal and you're going to stress the animal, then eventually it's going to succumb to something. You just... I mean, you take people and you stress them enough, they get they get sick from something. So um, it's it's the same thing with 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 colony collapse disorder. Now, um, uh, granted, a lot of times they they have been able to tie it to a specific virus or fungus. Uh-huh. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> there. Whoever it was, I just hung up on them. Um, so they're they're gonna they're gonna tie it to us. I mean, there was some research that was done that um, uh, where they came back and they said, okay, it's a it's a virus and a fungus. That's what causes colony collapse disorder. And then of course there was um, the vanishing of the bees movie where they came back and they said it's this very specific pesticide. And I and I do think that they did a a really fascinating thing there in that um, the the what the people did was uh, the French. They did this thing where it's like, okay, here's a sunflower, and then the bee comes, and the bee goes, and gathering up all of the nectar and and pollen and stuff, and very efficiently, very you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, thoroughly, completely, methodically, and then there's um uh this this sunflower that's got this stuff that's this systemic pesticide yeah. and the bee comes and goes <laughs> and then falls off the flower uh-huh. and can't and find their way home it scrambles their thinking that they can't remember how to get home again well i i think it's i i think they eventually recover and then they find their way back and and it and it seems like that there's like it didn't kill the bee mm-hmm. since it didn't since the bee didn't die, it's therefore allowed as a as a pesticide. Um, but um, uh, the bee, uh, um, uh, it, it seemed like one of those things where after like you know several months or something, that's when CCD would mysteriously happen. Yeah, and it's a funny. Everybody's gone. But because of the time lag, you know, people aren't putting it together that way. Yeah, and this whole class of pesticides is called um, neonicotinoids. Yeah. And what they do is it, it goes right into the, the central nervous system and does a little bit of scrambling. So now I'm, I'm going to propose that, you know, and this is, uh, this is the point that we made in our video, is that if you didn't, if the bees were not stressed, they would probably be able to tolerate these very specific pesticides. They would not, colony collapse disorder would not exist in this example. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but it's like when you stress the bees a lot and then you add that in, then you – I mean, you stress the bees a lot, it's going to be something. Mm-hmm. But, if, but if you add – if you make this vector available, then okay, then they're going to die of that. And, and it's possible they're so stressed that they're going to die of that or they could die of a, a variety of other things. Yep. So, so anyway, that's – so colony collapse disorder is, is just one of the many things you can die of from – from stressing your bees, and then um, uh, and 
then there's the whole thing about, okay, now we know exactly what virus and fungus cause it, or we suspect that we know <laughs> which virus and yeah, fungus cause it. Yeah, we suspect that we know. And that, that relationship is just because bees have it doesn't mean it's, it's causal. Oh, that's, and there's that too. Now, um, but the reason why all the research was done and we come up with this is because now, ooh, guess what we've just come out with? We're, you know, big chemical incorporated, and, and we've come up with something that fights that virus or fights that fungus. And so um, for $100 a hive, you can spray this stuff in, and we'll get $100 a hive. I mean, oh, yeah, you'll also um, possibly not have as much colony collapse disorder, and we'll get rich along the way. Yeah. Now. Yeah, so there's there's that cuz cuz I kind of feel like while it's a novelty to know what is the exact virus and fungus or, you know, maybe that's not or you know, it's a novelty to know that somebody suspects this virus and fungus. That's neat. And and it's like but it doesn't really apply. Um it doesn't really have anything to do cuz like if you don't do all these things and of course, you know, I would really like to advocate not using these pesticides let alone any pesticides, um, because there's always, you know, you know, I shouldn't say there's there's not always something wrong, but it seems like there's generally something wrong. And, and frankly, when it comes to the whole thing of like, hey, I know what to spray on our food. Let's spray poison on our food. <laughs> Somehow that just kind of bothers me. And apparently it doesn't bother a lot of other people. Um, but I think it's a, no a novelty to know, but it doesn't apply. Um, but And so now it's like, okay, well, well what else is it? And I think... We found a pesticide that seems to have a rather direct link, and it's kind of like um, I, I suspect that there are other pesticides out there that might also be contributing, um, or they'll cause other problems. And and it's like um, uh, there's if if nothing else, a great branch of pesticides is insecticides, and of course bees are insects so it's you know like when when treating apple orchards or hell the almond orchards which have so much bees i mean it's such a delicate balance you gotta they're, they're spraying them for insects but then they've got to spray at a different time than when the bees are there and you know that's the thing where you get into the the homeowner with the fruit trees in their yard who doesn't read the 96 percent of them who don't read the directions they tell them how to use it. And this is the reason why they're on the market in the first place. Even if it harms bees, as long as that company includes a pamphlet saying, well, here's how to do it so it doesn't harm bees, like, you know, spray it at dusk when the bees aren't out. And then, you know, if it only has a, a short term of being a short term, like a few hours of being poisonous to them, if you sprayed at dusk, well, the bees wouldn't be out anyway. Um, so hopefully you'd be missing them. I'm not in favor of this. I'm just repeating the information. Uh, but nobody reads the instructions, you know, Saturday afternoon. You haven't sprayed your tree. Now it's in flower. You missed, you know, you missed the time when you were supposed to supposed to spray. I say that in quotes. And uh, then the bees are all over the, the flowers and you go out there and you spray them. And, you know, you kill everybody. But they still get away with it because they did include the directions. You know, it's like they wash their hands of it. It's up to the homeowner now, and I just think that's wrong. It it should be go for the lowest common denominator. If people don't, if 96% of the people don't read directions, then that can't be assumed to be the way to get the information out to use it appropriately. Therefore, shouldn't be allowed out there. 
So I, I do think that um, this is one of those things where um, uh, if people were required to read or, or if it was still attached, it used to be required that the product had to come with the MSDS. And and if that were still the case, if I mean, I, I think the law actually still stands, but um, companies found that if they just removed it, that they could get away with it. Nobody punished them. And um, and so now they don't do that because the having the MSDS with the product really reduces sales. And punishment <laughs> isn't really a fine. You know, come on, if you're going to make a few billion dollars on profits and you have to pay uh, half a million dollars, in a, then that would be a huge sum. Maybe you have to pay a hundred thousand dollars, you know, for your fine. Oh, come on! You don't have right. to be an accountant and, to figure out the benefit of that. <laughs> yeah, making people aware of the toxicity of these products um, is such a drag on sales. <laughs> you know, man. Suddenly, when they find out what's in it, then they don't want to buy it. I know. Weird. Bayer is doing a, a bee care tour right now. Bayer is the company we were talking about a little earlier that makes it. And it says, uh, I just pulled it up on the Internet. Bayer is hosting its second annual bee care tour to further understand the important role the honeybee plays in our food supply. The tour is traveling to university agriculture schools across the country to celebrate pollinators and foster collaboration and discussion among growers, beekeepers, researchers, and others. Learn more about bee health and spread the word about the importance of pollinators. I just can't read this without thinking how, how deceptive that is. It, it sounds like the setup, and and that there will like they'll come out. Bayer will come out with a product that will will cost like five hundred dollars per hive. I'm, I just made that number up, um, and and it's like, uh, but if you spray it on the hive, then it counters the toxicity from whatever's causing colony collapse disorder. Ah. But once they've invented the product and it's five hundred dollars a hive, then um, I, I suspect that what they're going to do is going to pass a law requiring that all hives have to be treated with this stuff. And if you're poor, you can beg for um, getting some sort of subsidy. So that way you can afford the $500 per hive that's going to cost. Because, hey, lives are at stake here, people. Yeah. <laughs> people are going to die if you don't, if you don't spray this. So then what's going to happen then? Like all every, every hive in the United States will be legally required to be sprayed. And I'm just making all this up, but no, it you're just not making that up. That actually seems like a foundation. Like this is the foundations being laid now for this big fear thing. Well, that already has happened. There have been beekeepers who were told by the bee inspector that they either had to spray their hives or destroy the hives. And, you know, some of them have tried to take it to court too. It's a recent thing, but that just that, that crazy wild fantasy you just had there that you laid out is in some places already starting to happen. Oh, no. Oh, man, it's times like this when I hate it when I'm right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you see, you know, where is the money? You know, trace the money back and, right. you know, who makes the profit off of it? And you can certainly see why it happens that way. And and then of course they've got a massive PR campaign about because we love the bees so we much love the bees. And, and because we love our children that we poison them. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it reminds me of a story that Sep told, which I think I'm not supposed to relay. <laughs> that um, uh, where it's like there's this guy and he's like a bazillionaire, and he owns a food company, but at his home, they do not eat any of that food. 
So, um, and but they do eat they eat like sepulter style permaculture food. That's all that they eat. They will not eat the food that this guy sells. Um, I know someone in that same position. And and so you know somebody that that actually owns a- quit quit his job very very high up in one of the a company that if I said the name you would certainly know it. And he, you know, worked his way from college all the way up, was one of, like, the major players in it. And as you learn more about it, he uh, started thinking, maybe I can have a positive effect and tried to make some changes in it and ultimately decided that retirement was a, a better way to go. Oh, and, and then, and of course. It. They were eating organic in their home and weren't touching yeah. the crappy stuff. I, I think that the two of, of all the stuff that's available in a grocery store – I think the two brands that I avoid the most are Kraft and Nabisco. <laughs> I, I think I think Kraft kind of treats the American public like one great big guinea pig, and and then they use the phrase acceptable losses. You and and then um, Nabisco is um, not too terribly different from that, but I don't think that they use the American public so much as guinea pigs. But I, it, it does seem like their practices, in from what little I've seen, extremely unethical. I mean, leaning very heavily on subsidy programs, and um, at the same time, like you know, if you put a lot of toxic toxic gick in there, that's that's totally great. There, it's, it's no problem with it. So I'm, I've, I've kind of got a very anti Nabisco, and so and then when I travel, like when I go to see you, <laughs> why can't you live near my house? Uh, when I travel, it's like that's the one thing that's like if my if, if I'm getting a little car sick, that helps me is is um, Fig Newtons, which um, <laughs> you know, and it's like oh, I'm feeling so I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna get something. And it's like okay, there's the Nabisco ones, and then there's the off-brand that I know nothing about. I have to eat the off-brand ones. I I cannot bring myself to actually give money to Nabisco. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I roll. All right. Now, um, uh, let's talk a moment about miticides, mm-hmm. which, you know, granted, a mite is an arachnid, which is different from a bee, which is an insect. However, I believe that um, they're close enough that the miticides are going, like, if you put the miticides on at a slightly higher level, you will kill all the bees. So you've got to put on, if you're going to use a miticide, you're going to put it on at just the right amount. So that it it'll it'll kill a majority of the mites because it won't kill all of them. It'll kill a majority of the mites while killing only a few of the bees. Yes, that's yes. that's the theory. <laughs> that's the theory. Now and and but I'm going to say that if you use the miticides, then um, that's a that's a stress vector for the bees. Which going rolling back a little bit. Pesticides. When the bees go out there and they interact with any of the pesticides that are out there, especially the insecticides, but it can also include herbicides. When they include, you know, so they go out there and they interact with the poisons that have been sprayed around or, you know, applied in other ways, that's going to be a stress point. And so, and, and that's what we're getting at with colony collapse, colony collapse disorder. There's like a dozen different things that are stress vectors. And then if you hit all those stress vectors, then it's like your bees are going to die of something. Yeah, they're just creating more and more stress. And really right. that's, the, that's the one thing it comes down to is what, is what is consistent in all of this is you're putting bees into stress. So I think, I think the miticides are a stress vector, 
And then, of course, the organic people will often use um, things like the powdered sugar approach, or they'll use um, different kinds of essential oils. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, but they'll still have colony collapse disorder, whereas the people that are treatment free tend to not have colony collapse disorder at all. Yes. Although the, the it's much lower. Yes, and you know I'm not. I did the thing with. You know, I went the organic route initially, but I just don't think treatments are the way to go. You have to build up the strength of the bee rather than trying to knock down, trying to have the, the knockdown drag out with the the thing, the, you know, the mites or something. I've had mites, you know, and I, my bees, they worked it out. They worked it out. I, and I mentioned earlier, you know, I've had the deformed wing virus that the is a vector. The mites are a vector for it. They carry it along. And my bees worked it out, you know, and you have to be willing to let the bees die off if they're they're weak hive anyway. So, um, uh, I, you know, and I like that. And that's something we talked about in the video, too, was um, trying rather than out there trying to poison bad things, which is basically mm-hmm. you're, you're even if you're doing organic, it's what you're trying to do. You're trying to poison wh- what you don't want. And so rather than trying to poison what you don't want, which is still nature, because those mites are part of nature, and the fungus is part of nature, and the virus even is part of nature. Those are all part of nature. Rather than fighting those vectors, that the thing to do is is to build up the health of the of the bee mm-hmm. overall. And then they can deal with that. Yeah. Because so often the fight that you take to it, the poison, is also poisoning your bees. It's just that it's not poisoning them as much. So it's it's like it turns out that that you know it's that whole complicated thing of like well you've added a stress factor. So And you know even with the like I did the what did I do the essential oils one time I heard uh, I had some years ago I had mites and I thought oh I'll try the thyme uh thymol which is a thyme oil uh from an, the herb thyme. And so I got some and I did just what it says, liberally douse a few paper towels, lay it down on the top of your bars on the top box and then close it up. And I noticed as I was putting it in, it's so strong. It's so strong. The scent, Um, it kills, supposedly it kills off the mites. But what I saw was the bees went into a panic mode inside of there. They were running around. There was no way they could get away from this, the fumes of it and it caused distress to the hive and that really bothered me it was like uh, okay i did that once won't do that one again same thing when you douse them with powdered sugar it's you know it's a quote organic solution to getting them to groom more to take the, the uh to take the mites off of each other and do some you know hygienic activity but if you ever have done that, you dump that powdered sugar in there, and again, you see panic throughout the hive. You have just made a massive mess of the hive, and every bee, they've got to go clean up everything. It's like somebody opened up your house and just blew, hey, did you ever do sheetrocking? And then you, <laughs> you ever did sheetrocking in your house, you have an example of what, what it's like. You know, the powdered sugar is inside the pages of books, for God's sakes. It's, it's on everything. Um, so... When you do that, you're creating stress at the same time as you're coming up with a human-centered solution for it. I, I've just done away with all the treatments completely. And yes, some bees will die. Some hives will die. But 
you know, you have to have that long-term view from Mother Nature of taking that weak, the weak genes out of the gene pool. Right. Next item on the list, migratory beekeeping. Mm. And I've got a couple of things here. One is, is I think that, you know, we, we need to point out what it is. And and then the next thing is, is I think no one will believe us. And so we need to... <laughs> We, we need to somehow say the things that will make it so that it's believable. I mean, when I made the video with you in it, that was really a major concern. I thought that people would just say, nobody does that. No one's going to pick up a beehive, put it onto a semi-truck, and move it thousands of miles. I mean, maybe they'll move it five miles because they're moving to a different, you know, like the yeah. farmer's moving or something. But no one's going to move it like thousands oh like yeah three thousand miles or ten thousand miles no one's going to do that and it's like no that's totally what they do so that's that's why in my video i i needed to go get conventional beekeepers on the video where they say okay first we start off going to florida and then we go over to california yeah, florida and then citrus come- almonds in 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 california and and then they go up the West Coast, popping inland once in a while for different crops. Yep, San Fernando Valley, and, and then they go up to uh, up to where I live, up in Washington State. That's apple crops across to um, the blueberries in Wisconsin, Minnesota, all the way across to Maine for more blueberry crops. And you know you're in, picking up other things along the way too. But yeah, that's just that's the the whole structure of it is following the the bloom. And and you're at the end of the year, there there could be as many as ten thousand miles on those bees. Oh, easy, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, uh, uh, wow, wow. Now that's that is some serious migratory beekeeping. And it's like, um, I I don't know how to really drive home the point how real it is. And of course. Um, they put hundreds of hives onto a semi truck, and um, uh, and they stack them up crazy high, and then they they wrap the truck in netting to keep the bees in as they go down the road, um, and and then of course you know they put the hives on. If there was a bunch of worker bees out, you know, gathering nectar, then it's like, oh, sucks to be you. Bye. So they try <laughs> to move in your hive. They try and move them at night when everybody's home. But really, there isn't the kind of care taken to the hives. But certainly, um, I mean, this is migratory beekeepers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. We've developed monocultures. We've developed this whole system that needs them, that requires them. We've we've had people learn how to do this so that they can be party to it, too. And all of a sudden, (laughs) the game changer is all of a sudden there's bee diseases like crazy. They're knocking and CCD that are knocking hives out left and right. They can have losses, uh, you know, up to 70%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How unsustainable and, is that? <laughs> uh, true, true. And and it's like when I interviewed that one guy, I think he had to say, he said something like he had this contract with almond growers or something like that, and then because of his contract, he ended up having to buy like this enormous, like 7,000 colonies from Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, and bring them in in order to be able to meet his contractual needs. And so I'm just kind of listening to that, and I'm thinking about like, 
so often the farmer gets screwed in all this commodity farming stuff. Right, right. And it's like, so the farmer takes all the risks. So in this case, the beekeeper has to take all the risks. Yeah. And the um uh the, the almond grower is like, but of course now I'm kind of wondering, like, isn't the almond grower also a farmer? But um, well, yeah, but, you know, monoculture is often corporations rather than individuals anyway. But, you know, like even with something you just said there, and this guy had to go buy thousands of bees from another continent where no doubt, just like the, the mite that originally came from Asia, you know, what else got imported with those bees? Nobody's taking a microscope and looking at everything that they're bringing in to see is this all something that our our local bees can deal with or not. So there's things like the Israeli, uh, what is it, Israeli paralysis virus um, that came in from overseas bees. Um, you know, we, we keep doing these really dumb things. I, I think that's just a bad idea when you bring in things from different continents, especially where we don't know, we don't know, we don't know the breadth of what we're doing there. So then while you're a bee on a truck, and you're cruising down the interstate. Now, this is the time of day when normally what you're going to do is um, uh, you're going to go and, and, and forage for some nectar, right? Uh-huh. Well, now and- they actually try to get them all loaded up at night, and most of these bee trucks move at night because they don't want the sun beating down on them either. It's, it's too hot for them to be out like that. So generally they're night movers. So you'll see them coming up the freeway. We had one flip over on the bridge down here in, in Portland a few years ago. You know, it's it's tired night drivers on the freeway with millions of bees in the back. And, you know, every year there's a few of those semis that, for who knows what reason, get in an accident and <laughs> release a whole lot of bees somewhere. <laughs> All right. So let's say that um, you're going from the almonds in Southern California up to something in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking that's a two-day drive. And yep. you're doing it at the time of the year when the nights are kind of shorter. Yep. And, and they're keeping the bees inside underneath that mesh that they've got over it. They're keeping the bees right. in there until they get to the location that they're going to be at. So, yeah, not so cool. Oh, yeah, I so, feel bad for the migratory beekeepers. I really do. I, at first, I, no, no, yeah, yeah it's a I brutal was, business. Yeah, I was angry at them about. Come on, you guys, you just have to stop doing it. And then I realized, wow, they are so invested that even when they know that there's activities that they they need to stop doing, they they can't. You know, it, it's a sad situation. And well, until we exactly. break up our monocultures, we're not going to find a solution to it. It's the monoculture that's the core of the problem with it. Which is exactly what the conventional beekeeper guy said in the video with you. Yeah. Um, he said, he said, until you stop the monocrops, this is what this is what the business model is going to be. Mm-hmm. And and so um, and of course every year, then the these companies are like um, you know screwing people just a little bit more, four percent, screwing them another three percent, screwing them another six percent. And and um, in the meantime, the, the the these migratory beekeepers are like, I've already got all these investments in the, the semi trucks and and all of you know the the hives themselves, and and the only way I can see of making ends meet is to you know buy more colonies and try and do this on a larger scale. Um, but the key is is that okay, they load the truck at night, then they've got to just get to their destination as quick as they can. 
And so it's like a lot of times they're not able to drive only at night. I mean, the bees can't just sit there parked during the day. And and so that, this leads me to my next thing, which is that one of the things the bees got to do in their box is they got to do a little bit of climate control. I mean, they 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 all get down there and they 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 work air through when it's too hot, or they kind of bottle things up when it's too cold, and and a lot of their climate control stuff is not working when they're going along in this truck. I mean, it's it's high stress. It's just stressful, and and then at the same time, the, the the beekeepers are taking their honey and trying to give them back sugar water. Now we we talked about this a little last time, but I kind of feel like we've got a little bit more to talk about in the sugar water front. Um, maybe before I start talking about sugar water, do you have anything else to add about migratory beekeeping? No, I mean I, I yeah, I think I've already said it. They you know they're beekeepers who who probably love their bees too. And they are yes. very sad about it. So yeah, yeah, yeah just they're doing everything they can to try and make everything work out, but their their bees are dying in mass, and it's very mm-hmm. depressing. They're depressed. They're they're very upset about it, and they're trying. They're like, when are all the smart people going to come up with the answers for us so that we, <laughs> we you know? And and it's like then the and I know you've had conversations with people at the U.S. as as Joel Southen calls it, U.S. Duh. Um, <laughs> But you've you've had conversations with people at the USDA about this, and it's like you say, okay, look, here's here's the things that you do, and they looked at the list and they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, that one, yeah, we're not going to do that one either. Um, uh-huh. You know, migratory, stop doing the migratory beekeeping. Oh yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, and so they they've elected to not even try to understand the the problem, and and it's like, okay, well. How about doing, you know, polyculture instead? And they're like, no, yeah. we're, we're monocrops are the, you know, yeah, yeah it's what we're going to do. So, and of course, the USDA is is being run by um, the the people who used to work for Monsanto. So, of course, you know, this is their this is their profit model. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, all right. So, the you important know, I, summary. I, let me add one thing on to there. There's a really nice book. It's a little esoteric, but it's a really lovely book called Global Hive by Horst Kornberger, uh, Bee Crisis and Compassionate Ecology. I'm, I'm particularly fond of this book. He had, I'm going to read a few sentences from it. Um, the balance is tipped dangerously so that beekeeping has become bee losing. We are squandering an irreplaceable key species. Bees are not the first victims of worldwide violence against nature. They are, however, the first species where the loss will be felt by everyone. Apiculture is the stage on which the environmental drama of our time is enacted, and we are close to tragedy. We are all audience actor and script writers. We designed the set and chose the theme. We have written the plot and are writing it right now. I think he's got an interesting perspective on it because he talks about compassionate ecology and how to, how to still be a beekeeper but uh, without playing it by the corporate rules. So, um, I, uh, yes. I, and, and the last thing I want to add on this point, and then before we go on to the next one, is this is another vector for bee stress. Uh-huh, absolutely. Sugar water. Absolutely, yep. I, <laughs> I knew where you were going with this. Yep, so, sugar water. And sugar water, you know, take away the honey, Feed the bees sugar. It's so common, so common. And even on some of the bee lists that I consider the more enlightened ones that I'm on, I hear people talking about it all the time and, and people just having a conversation, accepting it. It's like, you know, bees were not designed to eat sugar water. 
It's just not. The, the pH is completely different. So when you have something that you're feeding, when bees are eating honey, it supports all of the enzymatic activity in their bellies, their um, the flora that live inside their intestines, the you know, everything is is in an appropriate balance for it. When you shift it, and sugar water is a different pH, when you change the system, if you would change the balance between the acid and the alkalinity, all of a sudden the enzymes can't do the same activities. The flora starts to suffer. Things die off that aren't being nurtured there. It's like, come on, it's a candy bar for God's sakes. You know, you can eat one once in a while, but you can't live on it. So when you take away the honey and you feed the sugar water back, don't think that it's a small thing. And while we're on sugar water, I want to mention pollen patties for the same reason. Pollen patties are another human interpretation of how bees gear up for spring. Um, Pollen patties are a real common thing. They're, They're a big hit right now because you can make the bees have their... Uh, spruce up for spring and increase their volume faster, faster. I mean, we're always bigger, faster, uh, longer, deeper, whatever. It's crazy. So the pollen patties are a mixture of like a, a a fat, like a soy protein, like a like a hydrogenated fat kind of a thing. And you mix it up with pollen and you buy these. They're already pre-made for you and you put it in there. You know, my bees have never brought in fat like like a soy fat kind of a thing. That's the medium that's getting the pollen spread out into the, the pollen patties. And the other thing is that these patties are made with stuff. I actually called the company and said, tell me more. Are you GMO free in this, the, um, the soy protein that you're using? And no, they're not. They're not. They're still using GMO stuff. So there, you're feeding your bees GMO stuff. Oh, come on. That doesn't take a genius to say that's probably not a good idea. But here's another misconception in it. So you put it in in early spring, and it stimulates brood production. What that means on the positive side is that your bees are going to build up faster, 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 and um, and you'll be ready to go when the bloom comes, and you know, you'll make more honey. But in the reality, what happens is your bees will eat it. They will build up faster. And then you'll see a drop-off. And I've, I've had people lose hives and tell me, I say, what was the sequence on this? What did you do? And then we go back and go, hey, you fed pollen patties a, 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 maybe two months ago. What happens is they build up the production, but now you're out of sync with nature. By nature's way, they build production according to the abundance of pollen that's available. So as they're raising their, their baby bees and building up production for the hive, there's no point in having you having you build up your production in February or March in my area. There's nothing for the bees to eat, and they're going to you know deplete all of their stores. So I'd say rather leave it to nature because she's got it handled. She you know you're going to be the bees are going to build their production up at the appropriate time of year when pollen is available, and that's why it stimulates brood production because when the pollen comes out, they know that the cycle is going to be appropriate to when the brood production comes up. That makes sense? It it does, yeah. And it's like whenever you try to, to run your systems contrary to nature, yeah. then then things tend to go pretty sucky. And, and um, it isn't connected right away. So you feed this stuff and they, 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 they go ahead and build their brood. And you go, wow, that was cool. That worked. That's great. About two months later, you're going to see, 
whoa, all of a sudden, or I'm not sure exactly when, you know, but sometime a little bit later, a few weeks, a few months later, all of a sudden they're out of sync with what's going on. And there's a, there's a bit of a die off that happens in there. And it happens more commonly than people think it does. So I'm also not a fan of, I'm not a fan of sugar water, but I'm also not a fan of the pollen patties. Let nature do it on her own. Now, you said something uh, a moment ago. Oh, I'm so opinionated. Um, I am so opinionated. <laughs> well, no, I think I, how are we going to how are we going to evolve if we don't have these opinions? And uh-huh. I, I but but and it, the, the key is you said something a moment ago about bigger, better, faster. Yeah. And and I, you know what? And I think I think that there's a lot to be said for bigger, better, faster that that. A lot of times when we seek out bigger, better, faster, we've, we got there because we improved the overall health of our colony. Uh-huh. And, and so there's a, lot, there's a lot to be said. But, but, of course, there's also times when, you know, bigger, better, faster, somebody, somebody did something that they thought was making things better. Sure, monoculture. And- there's a perfect example of bigger, better, faster. You know, I was thinking about cell size, like when they started beefing up the cell size. Uh-huh. Now you're gonna, you're gonna have a bigger bee that'll be able to carry more stuff back and forth. Uh-huh. You know, you're gonna you're gonna have the uh, bigger uh, bee, same size wings. <laughs> the, the Mack truck sized bee <laughs> that's gonna be able to carry that bigger load than the pickup truck size bee. Uh-huh. But um, they, they don't find that that's actually true. So yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and and then it you know they they so it turned out that they were mistaken, but it was a theory, and they ran with it for a while, and it turned to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So I don't think bigger, better, faster is necessarily the always good or always bad. Yeah. But I think it's a worthy goal to to have. But be careful. Yeah. Well, you know, if you go back to monoculture on this bigger, better, faster is centralized location. Make shipping so much easier and, you know, all of your seed and your sprays and everything are all happening in this one place. You're, you, you're not on different time cycles. You're, you know, raising your soy uh, or your corn or whatever, uh, you know, in just hundreds, thousands of acres so that you're all focused, you're focused on one particular thing that you're doing. You know, you're not trying to stretch yourself and have 20 different crops coming up at 20 different times, you're doing one crop one time. Right. So, but so then you don't, what you, what you see then is the downside of what did you just damage in the ecosystem? How many, you know, go out to a cornfield in the Midwest and you tell me how many different kinds of life are being sustained in that area. Not many, not many. Used to be a lot more, but yeah. then we took that all out. Mm-hmm. All right. On the topic of sugar water, then, of course, some people will just take sugar and mix it with water, get it dissolved, and that's what you feed your bees. Uh, other people are going to use high fructose corn syrup, and we all know how lovely that and that's is. That's often the migratory beekeepers that are using that simply because it's easy to, you know, it's easy to 55-gallon drums, easy to transport. Yeah. Half the cost, Half the cost of, yeah. of the sugar, yeah. So, and but but then there's also so you start telling people like, okay, don't don't do that, and then. And then people go and um, they will buy honey. They're going to hear your words and they're going to say, okay, I'm not going to feed my bees sugar water, but they're low on honey right now. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to feed them honey. Yeah. And, you know, the the best thing of all is if you do like I do, I hoard my honey. <laughs> I keep it in reserve. I always keep a two-year back supply of honey just in case I have a bee emergency that my bees are going to make it. And um, 
that would be the best thing, that it's honey from your own hives because that's who's going to be eating it too. So that's ideal. Second thing would be, okay, so you're a new beekeeper and you don't have that. Well, then go to somebody that you know that's a treatment-free beekeeper and see if you can buy some of their honey in bulk to have it in reserve or to feed your bees directly. Next step would be go to your local health food store and have them check with the beekeeper and find out, is this untreated? Is it treatment-free honey? And is it raw? It has to be raw honey. If you're going to feed it back to bees, you can't feed the cooked honey back because that's depleted all the enzymatic activity out of it by heat. So you've already destroyed that. That that really is just glorified sugar water. And the same for people, too, by the way. If you're going to buy honey for yourself, raw honey. It's got, that's the stuff that's got the nutrients in it. Cooked honey, that's the stuff that you typically find on a big box, uh, a, a, a regular grocery store, one with big scale. Um, you'll see that. They always want to cook the honey up because they're getting a lot of honey from all different places. And the color of the honey and the consistency of the honey is dependent upon the flower that it comes from. So you've got honey that can be super light, like um, uh, the maple flowers in springtime here. When the bees are pollinating on that and getting the nectar from that, that honey is super light, blonde, blonde honey. But I also plant buckwheat, and I get some really dark honey, too. Anyway, the suppliers, they're taking all that honey and mixing it together so it comes up with a generally uniform medium color. That way people don't go, why is this dark? Why is this light? Has this gone bad? And the other, the second reason, other than color, the second reason is if you heat honey, it won't granulate. So if you see any honey, that's, and granulated honey has shelf life, you know, it's sitting on the shelf and it's still liquid. It'll be liquid forever because you destroyed that process. But if you see granulated honey anywhere, that's raw honey. That's the good stuff. So even though in a supermarket it won't sell as readily because it looks like it's, quote, going bad, all it means is that it's granulating because that's part of the aging process of it. And depending upon what kind of flower it came from, some honeys, uh, oh, Dang, there's some honeys, I forgot the name of, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, Some honeys will granulate in as little as a week. (laughs) And I have some honeys that are two years old and they haven't granulated yet. So it's just dependent on what flower uh, nectar is in that batch, on what the time of granulation is. And it really has very little to do with if the honey is old or not. But anyway, what I'm saying that for is because if, if you wanted to buy some honey, that granulated honey would be a clue that that's probably a, that is a raw um, honey. So you want to check untreated. You just want to make sure you're not putting chemicals in it. And then I want to add on the back of this. When I first became a beekeeper was when CCD first was coming out and the USDA put word out. They said, anybody who lost a hive, we don't know why this is happening. Just send us. And they told you how to package up your dead bees to send them to them. So I I had just brought home a swarm, and within three days, they just simply died. Uh, now I understand why. We were doing a cutout out, outdoors. It was February, <laughs> freezing cold, and the people who called me simply said, you know, I got roofers who were roofing, and they said when they get to that end, if the bees are still there, we're going to spray them with raid. So even though that was not the ideal time to do it, we did it. And the bees simply got too chilled, too cold, too stressed, and they just died. They had a little bit of um, nosema, but no big deal. 
it was really the stress of the move. So basically, yes, I killed them. Anyway, I sent off these bees to the USDA to their research station, and it was amazing. They they were so small scale back then that they actually called me on the phone to report my results to me. That was pretty amazing. And I had a nice conversation with them. They said, you know, basically we tested for all the bee diseases. Your bees had a little bit of, of nosema, which is kind of like Montezuma's revenge kind of thing, but nothing that would have killed them off. So we think it was stress. But he did say, he asked me, he said, um, did you feed your bees anything? And I said, well, yeah, I gave them some of, you know, the honey from my bees, of which my bees didn't have any bee diseases. And he said, I'm asking this because we went out and we tested samples of honey that we bought off supermarket shelves and just seeing, you know, what is this? That's, is there a commonality in any of these? He said, we were shocked to find out that 99% of the honey that was on the shelves had spores of bee diseases in it. And so if you fed clean bees, if you fed your clean, healthy bees some of that sugar, uh, some of that honey, you would have just introduced the spores of diseases to your hive. So that's the reason you don't want to be doing that. You don't know what you're introducing to your hive. So way to go is save some of your own. Second best, get a friend or someone that you know that has clean beekeeping and buy some honey from them. Third way, go to your health food store, have them check for you. Is it raw and is it untreated? And that's the only stuff that you want to be feeding them. Anything outside of that, I wouldn't do it. Any honeys that are from different parts of the country, I especially wouldn't do because those are flowers that are foreign to them as well. So, oh, boy, I just did a that was Phew. That was that was the button I tried to push. <laughs> yeah, well, I, was, <laughs> I, I, I know that that was there. And, and so because that's, the, you know, you, you, you mentioned that in the colony collapses order video. Um, I'm, and I'm top sentence on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. It's like because the the stuff on the shelves has got a very high probability of having something that could kill your hive. I mean, the the bees um, for conventional beekeepers are temp- typically medicated to the gills, and and so then you know they 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 bask in all these diseases all the time, and and they're they're just medicated. But okay. um, eating it, and you don't want your bees eating it either. <laughs> right, 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 right. I right. think part of it too is on a commercial scale. Support people who are raising their bees in a good, healthy way with with lack of stress. You know, that's who you want to support. So that honey, frankly, I really think honey that's treatment-free and raw and, you know, raised the way that I think is the good way to do it, that honey ought to be selling for twice as much. You know, that cheap stuff that's full of pesticides and stressed bee labor, that stuff, that's the cheap stuff as far as I'm concerned. So I'm going to, um, when it comes to the colony collapses order and bee stress, that was the, the last item that I felt that we hadn't discussed. There's, I mean, there's a list of stuff that all contributes to bee stress and and can lead to all kinds of different illnesses and, and sicknesses. And um, so now now I feel like we're, I'm comfortable. We've wrapped up on colony collapses order. We can move on to other things. And I, and I want to roll back to when we were talking about Sepp Holzer's stump hive. Uh-huh. And so I think the first thing that I'd like you to, to do is, I mean, of course, we've talked about the log hive that you have and where it came from. And and this particular little stump hive is a little bit different. It's a little bit, it's manufactured. I mean, it's got 
little top bars in it. Uh-huh. Um, and hinge and, and a hinge on the side so you can open the door. <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's a novel little hive. It is a fascinating thing. And I've I've heard a rumor that some people believe that this is illegal. And and now I'm pushing another one of your buttons. Ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you'll hear people say that. I, I think the way that I understand it, you have to have 15 or more hives to be considered commercial. Or And if you're commercial, then you have to register your beehives. If you're a backyard beekeeper, you don't. Um, that said, I have heard, in, and it varies state to state. It varies from bee inspector to bee inspector. Generally, there's not enough budget in the government right now to be affording to have many bee inspectors out there. And their hands are taken, you know, all their activity is taken up with trying to deal with the conventional um, you know, the big beekeepers, the migratory beekeepers who have thousands of hives. So for that, yeah, that makes sense to me. For small beekeepers who are taking good care of their hives, uh, I don't see it as relevant. And what they want is that all of the combs are removable so that the bee inspector can come to your house and he can pick up a comb and look at it front and back and say, okay, you don't have any of the major bee diseases like foul broods or stuff like that. And say, you know, you're, you're healthy and keep on going. But if you have a fixed comb hive, you can't really pick it up and in, investigate it and look at it. So that's where the kind of the illegality of it comes. It's not inspectable, really. Frankly, though, I think if you're, you know, if you're just a backyard beekeeper, unless you've got a really cranky beekeeper, uh, be inspector around, I don't think that's going to really apply for most people. And I'm going to rely on the lack of money in the government <laughs> right now <laughs> so I, to to just keep that so that it's at a scale that people, regular people like us can all deal with it. So, I, so basically, I think what you're saying is, is that when bees took up residence in your house, that is against the law. <laughs> yeah, tell the bees that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then because I'm going further with this, and it's like so if if there's a, a hollowed out tree somewhere and bees set up shop in that tree, mm-hmm. that's against the law. Uh-huh. That's that's illegal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so I'm I'm kind of thinking like you know how far you know I suppose if they wanted to like they've decided like let's let's say that that you Jacqueline um, advocate these techniques which do not use products from Bayer mm-hmm. Incorporated. And so Bayer has uh, – and, and then on top of that, people – a lot of beekeepers are like, we love Jacqueline Freeman, and we love her techniques, and, we, and, and so they're adopting the things that you advocate. And Bayer would rather that these people buy the products that Bayer sells. Mm-hmm. And so the next thing you know, you're a bee inspector in your area. Um, I know, by the way. So, And gets fired. Uh, <laughs> and they put in a new bee inspector who is really secretly minion of Bayer, you know, I'm, I'm making this story there, there up. There are so. parts of the country where I've heard tales like this where, you know, there's a bee inspector who's just so in love with the conventional methods that, you know, he, he has gone and tracked down people. But I hear just as many stories. I even, when I was at the bee convention last month, I was talking with people who are bee inspectors who were saying, you know, and they're at treatment-free places. You know, a treatment-free convention is not a place you'd expect to see a a bee inspector. 
And they're saying, you know, I, I would love to have more people who are who are being open to ideas like this because he said, all I'm seeing is the down, the downhill crash that people are doing it. They're spraying the chemicals and the bees are all dying anyway. So it's, I I guess where I'm going with this is that um, the, the bad guy could come and, and require you to um, if you had such a hive to destroy it. Plus you've got your log hive and and they could require you to destroy that. And then if you happen to have another tree on your property that has a colony living in it, they they could say if you don't destroy it, we will and we'll send you the bill. Yeah, that and, stuff has happened to people. So it it is kind of scary, you know, until the paradigm changes. But we are the we are the new paradigm. So every bit of work we do on this, ultimately if we can keep showing positive results, I think the paradigm will change, and eventually, you know, I'm optimistic for that. I'm I'm holding out for the possibility that these kind of insights will really become common knowledge. I think the the important, you know, key out of this was the beginning of when I started making up my story was the part where you are impacting the, um, the income of a large corporation, which has a bit of a history at not being the most ethical. Oh, and, I was so influential. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I, I think that you, you are influential and, and it's, and it's like, uh, um, and I like to think that, that, you know, we're, we are making a yeah, big difference. Well, we are, the, and, you know, we are the new wave, the new paradigm coming in. It's, you know, when I started thinking this way with bees back 10 years ago, questioning everything about it, it was really, it was hard for me to find any information about it. And I know there were people like me here and there, but we were scattered few and far between. Now I meet people like this all the time. So I hold hope that this direction that we're headed in is is really, it is taking hold. Even when I go to, you know, I speak at a lot of bee clubs. And when I speak and I ask, you know, how many, how are you taking care of your bees? And I hear the same story. People who started out conventional, moved over to organic, and now are moving over to treatment-free. And I'm just so surprised how quickly it's happening. It's really, it warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Change is happening. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, we're making okay. it. We're making it. On to a much happier topic, water for bees. Oh, Water for Bees. You made the most beautiful little video, that Reverence for Bees thing. I just love that. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks for being the subject. That was easy. All I had to do is hold the camera, which I did a poor job of. I, I figured, I, I learned after that video that that particular camera is got jiggle cam built in. <laughs> I spent six hours finding software that would unjiggle that video. How funny. Well, it came out really nice. And I, I'm every time I've seen it or people have mentioned it to me, I, I just I really like it. It's sweet. I yes, I am a big proponent of making water stations for bees. I have the reason that came about was because when I first got my bees, you know, my, my whole career of bees is fraught with when I made this mistake and then I made that mistake. I made so many mistakes and still continue to make them. Um Anyway, I hope I make less and less as time goes on. But the first thing that happened was my neighbor said, wow, you got bees now. Huh? All your bees are over in my swimming pool. 
<laughs> and I just, it was like, wow, I hadn't thought of where were the bees going to get their water. And they do have to get water, you know, and they'll send out contingents just like they go out foraging for pollen and honey, uh, pollen and nectar. Uh, they also, or propolis, bee, tree sap, they'll also send out contingents of bees to go look for water. And they take up a mouthful of water and bring it back and and share it in the hive. And they need to keep appropriate moisture for the nursery especially, you know, if it's too dried out inside the hive, that's going to damage the baby bees. So they bring it in. And, of course, bees get thirsty, too. So they need water for all of their functions inside the hive like that. When you site a new hive, when you collect a swarm or you bring home a new nuke, the, when the first bees go out, they will go and seek water. And whatever it is, they put that push pin on the map and say, that's where we're going to collect water from now and now on. And, you know, in my neighbor's case, it was his swimming pool. So what we had to do was to come up with a plan to change that location. So now I'm much more on top of it. I, I We have little pools that we've dug in here and there. We have uh, bird baths with watering stations on top of them. Uh, I probably have uh, at least six, one, two, three, four, probably eight or maybe as many as 10 even now that I'm thinking of it all over the place. And what they are is is shallow places where you've got water, uh, shallow so that the bees don't fall in and drown. And then you you plant into you you plant into that thing like a bird bath for example. You would put mosses or marbles or gravel. Uh, a simple the simplest one you can make is a bird bath with gravel in it and then water poured on top and that way the bees can land on the mound of gravel and they can walk right down to the water's edge and stick their little tongue in and not even get their feet wet and get water you want to always put these in the shade too because the water will evaporate otherwise so i just put them underneath a tree or a bush or something and um i put i have a lot of moss in the northwest so i often make a pretty little moss carpet in there and you can put crystals in there, you know, crystal rocks, geodes, things like that. You can just make it really beautiful. And I often, it's just part of my aesthetic, is I often put fresh flowers in there. And I'll just go plant, pick a cosmos and stick one floating cosmos in it or something like that. I, I want them to be places of beauty for the bees to come to my aesthetic, but I like that. Um, when the bees are coming in, one of the things I've noticed that I just love is that we've got all these other kinds of native bees around too, and including like yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets and wasps and stuff. Everybody goes to the bee station, but there's no antagonism to anybody at the bee station. It's like it's neutral ground. It's the DMZ of the bee kingdom, of the bees kingdom. <laughs> it's really cool. And I'll, I'll see a yellow jacket right next to a bee that it would normally be attacking, you know, if it was someplace else. And right there, nope, we're on water mission. Everybody, this is the, the zone where we all can get, we all can get along. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the neutral zone for bees. Yeah. Okay, um, the, the the next thing I want to move on with is that uh, I believe it was the movie Queen of the Sun made what I believe to be an excellent point, and that's rather than having one beekeeper with 30,000 colonies, to have 10,000 beekeepers with three colonies. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's way smarter. You've got your, your 
hives all spread out so that everybody's got something immediately local to them. Yeah, and more care, you know, more education that goes along with it too. Less industrialized beekeeping. Right. I, I, I think that um, um, it's a big part of permaculture. I mean, well, with permaculture, I think a lot of it is is that rather than having, you know, um, 10,000 acres of one crop that you'll have maybe uh, 200 acres with 100 crops. And, um, you know, you'll diversify your income streams and then plus everything works more symbiotically as designed instead of like, you know, trying to force everything to support the one monocrop. Yeah, more like a mimicry of nature's method. Right, right. Um, and so I, th I think that, that this this tidbit of advice applies to really pretty much everything. I mean, I mean, in a way, when you've got your migratory beekeepers with, you know, 10,000 hives, then in a way they're kind of doing a monocrop thing. That's their only business. And and so it's kind of like, you know, and when they when they get put on in a hard spot where it's like, okay, now we're going to like take away 3% more of what we paid you last year and that's the deal this year, then um they don't have any other diversity to go back to. Um it's it's kind of like that guy out of the Broken Limbs movie where um, they came and they said, um, okay, this is all we can pay you per box of apples this year. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, okay, I'll just feed the apples to my pigs. Uh -huh. And they're like, no, wait, wait, wait. Turns out we changed our mind. We can pay what we paid you last year. Oh, <laughs> well, and I guess I'll bring you boxes of apples. I mean, he had other options for that stuff. Yeah. You know, so and I just, I just kind of feel like, uh, and then, yeah, I think when you're, living in a plethora of life on a small farm then um it it when it's three hives then that's a beautiful thing you're bonding with with the bees as as well as all the other animals and all of the other growth that's going on but if you're in a spot where it's one of those places where they've got like 80 hives all in one spot yeah then it's kind of like this seems kind of industrial mhm mm yeah so Anyway, all right, um, we're almost done. We're down to the end of the list. We're about to wrap up. I've got three points left, and I think they all tie together. So really, it's kind of like we've got one point left. And so the three points are the three-season forage, lots of variety of forage, and polyculture. Yep, you got it. Yeah. Which all three of these things, I think we've already talked about at least a little bit. Yeah, well, and this would be the one thing, whether you're a beekeeper or not, you could do this anyway. Um, it's really important that you have forage available for the bees in all the different seasons. There'll be a peak flow. You know, my area, it's June when the blackberry flowers come out. But I've got to have the goldenrod and the asters and the sedums in the fall, or there's nothing for my bees to do. So uh, and they, they need to be really amassing more for winter. So it depends on what part of the country you live in. But nonetheless, uh, you know, really taking a look at this from a gardener perspective you want to have you want to have a polyculture. You want to have as much variety going at all different times for the bees to choose from. So yeah, uh, and the variety is really big because there have been studies that show when bees don't get enough variety, the processes that happen inside of their system, their internal systems, start to deter to have deleterious effects. 
That would probably be a good way to say that. Um, they don't make, and I don't want to go too technical on this here, so I'm just going to say it's not as good for them. Um, but I can, I can go chemistry professor kind of on this, but <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Anyway, okay. the sum is the sum of the of what we're saying is that make sure that you've got it for all of the seasons that bees are out, that you've got forage available and a tremendous variety of it. And let me give you a little bit of hint on this too. When you're planting stuff, bees go out in contingents to catch, to, to they go out in contingents to gather the different kinds of nectars that they're getting. And they don't go from one flower to the next, like people think they do from one variety to the next. People think, oh, I have a garden. They're all over everything. No, no. The bees that day that are on squash blossom contingent, that's all they're doing, squash blossoms. And the bees that are on uh, cardoons, they're, you know, pollinating the artichokes. That's their mission that day. And the bees that are doing the oregano, that's their mission that day. They don't mingle it because, frankly, pollination wouldn't work if they did. You know, if the if it goes if a bee goes from apple blossom to cherry blossom to peach blossom, you know, nobody gets pollinated then. So they're wired to be able to do their mission that day. I'm on the peach contingent, so I'm just gathering from peach blossoms. So when you plant, you want to be aware of this. If I have lavender up in my garden, I don't want to put some lavender in my front yard and then some lavender in my backyard and then some lavender way up in the field, you know, like what I want to do is put it in clumps. So if I have the clumps, that's going to be a, a lot more productive in terms of, of bee, um, how much transportation they have to handle in order to do that. So, so um, I I think that it's a little bit of it's like the botany of desire. Uh-huh. And so I kind of wonder about the thing about how did the bees evolve to be like, I'm going to go out and today I'm only going to do dandelions. Mm-hmm. That's I'm on dandelion patrol, <laughs> only doing dandelions. And even though I'm going to go buy 20 other kinds of flowers, I just have to ignore them because I'm not assigned to those today. I'm assigned to Now, in the world of botany of desire, um, Michael Pollan's work, then it's, it's kind of like um, it's actually the, the, the plants are using the bees. And um, I'm going to provide you with this deliciousness, but so I'm I'm not because of course I, I kind of doubt that the bees are aware that they're they're involved in this um, flower pornography thing, <laughs> you know that that they probably that they're out there to get nectar and only get nectar, but I I I can't imagine that it's like okay you know each each plant each flower has a different way of doing it and and then they're going to um, be you know they're, they're I mean bees are extremely methodical, and and it's like they like when they get and this is the thing about mason bees too how how honeybee compares to a mason bee with 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 a honeybee it gets to a blossom and it's like it's going to be very efficiently try to um to get all of the nectar off of that flower mm-hmm. and and then when that when that flower has been fully processed it it moves on to the next flower very methodical whereas um a mason bee is more like <laughs> i got some nectar and some pollen and I'm gonna go someplace else now. Whee! <laughs> and and so it's like this um, is more like a party animal. So <laughs> funny. so the honeybees are the geeks of the bee world. Very methodical. Very 
And so I imagine that that it's like, yeah, I'm today I'm processing um, dandelions, and so I'm counting them, and I'm going to get. I'm not going to go back to the same one. I'm going to go on to the next one, and you know, and somebody else is going to process the other varieties. So I, I'm, I'm, I guess the only thing I'm trying to say is that I, I think it's not for the sake of pollinating the plants. It's for the sake of gathering the nectar efficiently. Mm-hmm. That's that's my guess. Yep. Uh huh. Okay. Now, um, uh, I think with polyculture, I mean, you know, of course, I'm bonkers about permaculture, and polyculture is such a major part of permaculture, at least to me, that I kind of feel like with polyculture, then the plants, uh, the nectar that's given off has a richer nutrition level if that same plant is grown in polyculture than if it is not. Oh, yeah. And, and and so then that leads to a stronger, more vibrant bee, mm-hmm. and and um, um, was then therefore more resistant to whatever ickiness might be trying to work its way mm-hmm. into the colony. Uh-huh. So that's so I, I I you know, but of course as permaculturalists, we're all going to be growing polyculture. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is probably as bonkers about polyculture as I am. <laughs> uh huh. So. So that one's that one's a, a slam dunk. That one's yeah. that one's easy. And of course, lots of variety of forage. I mean, it's I mean to to the monocrop pe- monocrop people they don't get it, you know. But at the same time, the, the the monocrop people, it's not like they only eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich three meals a day um, for um, you know eight weeks at a time. Um, it's like you know if they had chicken for dinner, then the next night they're going to have something else for dinner. They're not going to have not chicken for dinner. Um, I mean, I think, you know, variety, I mean, that's their own thing. Um, and it's like, oh, well, you could live on it. And it's like, that's kind of where we end up with the sugar water. Well, I seem to feed them sugar water, and they seem to not die. And I, and you know what? That is kind of an inverse of the things that we've been saying, is that the best thing is for them to eat their own honey. But if it's an emergency and you got nothing else, well, you and you got some sugar and some water. That might be what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's sugar water. And, and you know, like I would see that, like, oh my God, they're on the verge of dying, you know, of starvation in an emergency. I have never done it, but if it's a very, very short-term emergency thing, uh huh, go for it. Don't let them die just out of starvation. I mean, dying out of starvation—that's not a good thing. Right. But in the meantime, then go back up your pantry and get some. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and then the other thing is, is I think sugar water is probably going to be better than honey purchased at Safeway. <laughs> because the sugar water isn't going to contain a bunch of bee diseases. Yeah, that is true on that count. So, yeah, you got me there. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, granted, it's like if, if you've got honey that you stored from your hives in the past, then, you know, and, and you've been doing this permaculture style, that would be better than sugar water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but, but it's like, yeah, if, if bad things happen and you're in an emergency, then you could turn to this. But, but, the, but you know, to make it the default, the problem, the thing that we're trying to emphasize is the problem is where you take away the honey and you replace it with sugar water every year. Yeah, and you do that like, for no, a few weeks at a time. Yeah, that that's where you start going down the slippery slope. Yeah, no, you know, don't do that. Don't I, do I that. want to bring up, too, I just want to mention a few particular kinds of flowers. 
that are very good to plant since we're talking about polyculture. Okay. Um, there's a few that are, as far as nectar, that are high volume nectar producers. Um, borage is one, goldenrod, lemon balm, phacelia. Oh my God, phacelia is spelled with a PH. And I know you can buy it at, uh, uh, what's the seed company called? Turtle. What? Uh, turtle something. It's a biodynamic seed company. And the first part of the word is turtle, and I forgot the second half. Anyway, you, I, I tend to get all my seeds from Peaceful Valley Farms. Peaceful Valley probably has it too. It's spelled P-H-A-C-E-L-I-A. The reason this is such a great plant for bees is because it puts out, it kind of, it, it gives a flower, but the flower is kind of coiled up so that every day it uncoils a little bit more and puts out a new flower and a new flower and a new flower. And it will do it for 45 to 60 days, you know, just about two months of constant bloom. So it really is, and it has a lot of nectar in each day. So it's a really high producer. And any of the clovers are good, particularly yellow clover. And as far as pollen, and pollen is what the bees use to feed the babies. Again, now, when you say... Yellow clover, you mean yellow sweet clover? Yeah, yellow sweet clover. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, but any of the clovers are really good ones, too. Um, great pollen, especially high volumes of pollen, come from Phacelia. It gets it on both of them. Hazelnut, I live in the capital of the world for hazelnut. I think 90-plus percent of all hazelnuts in the world are right in my area, and that's a really high one. Um and that's the reason I like hazelnuts, and we plant them all over the place here, is because hazelnuts give pollen real early in the season, February. They're dropping their catkins down, and they've got pollen available, so they're a good late winter pollen feeder. Uh, lavender, elderberries, <laughs> elderberries, boy, we got them all over the place. Hawthorns, oak, um, mint, sunflowers, thyme, willow. Willow is massive. You know, anything that can drop a catkin down. Willows are like tremendous. Phacelia, I already mentioned, uh, borage, uh, lemon balm again. Uh, Eschium, E-C-H-I-U-M, way up there, especially the one that's the light blue color. Asters and coriander. All of those are really excellent for it. Um, what about in the fall? In the fall, uh, I go with asters. I'm a big fan of sedums. Sedums throw out their flowers, and my bees cannot stay off of it. It has like an umbral type like an umbrella type on, on the top. Joe pie weed is something else I plant a lot of. I'm trying I'm walking through my garden in my mind right now and cosmos. <laughs> cosmos are out in the fall. Plenty of asters and asters grow really well in much of the country. So these are those are great fall ones. So that would be your dandelions, just lots of dand- now you've got hawkweed, right? Yeah, the fake yeah. dandelion. Not not Which, as much dandelions have a lot more of it. Um, and also when you're planting the plants, you know, for one thing, you want them to be in sort of a same general area, like I said, kind of clumping them together so they don't have to go from one lavender plant to 500 feet away to another one. Um, and sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, I live in the city and I don't see any bees at all, or I live somewhere where I don't see any bees at all. And I think, you know, I bet in their yard and in their particular neighborhood, they don't have that clumping going on. They've got one lavender plant and one, you know, one, one of six different, one rosemary plant, one thyme plant. So when the groups of bees come out to do the rosemary run, you know, it's too far to go for just one plant. So they don't put it on their root map. The most attractive bee flowers, they actually have colors that they're drawn to. They see different than us. They have infrared vision. 
and infrared vision actually makes red look black. So it doesn't. So they're not as drawn to red flowers as they are to the other ones that the ones they like the most are blues and purples and violets, um, and whites are after that, and then the yellow flowers. And they they see orange. They don't see it as well, um, but they not so much on the red. They'll go to it, but not like a hummingbird will. So those are some things when you're planting around your your house. Uh, some things to keep in mind: clump it, plant colors that they know, plant for the three seasons, especially your driest season. Make sure you've got extra then. For me, that's late summer and early fall. We're in a drought here in the Northwest, although nobody hardly knows that. We get rain, 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 and then it just simply shuts off for three months. So I have to do heavy planting for anything that's going to bloom in the fall. In different parts of the country, it may not be as much of an issue. There's a, a website that's got a wonderful plant list called the Melissa Garden, and it's a plant list for bees. And the website is themelissa.com. So you got to put the T-H-E in the front of it, T-H-E-M-E-L-I-S-S-A-G-A-R-D-E-N.com. And they just have a, a extensive bee-loving bee plant list. Okay, I gotta, I'm typing it now because you, you actually spelled it. The Melissa Garden. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah, one L, two S's. Oh, somehow I screwed it up. One one L and two S's. Okay, I screw, that's where I screwed it up. Then. <laughs> one L and two S's. And then just, the Melissa Garden. There it is. Yep. The, oh, a honeybee sanctuary. Okay. Yeah. So for you, at one point you said themelissa.com, but it's not. It's themelissagarden.com. I did. So okay. I'm glad you corrected me on that. And they click on okay. that little link that says plants for pollinators and scroll down, and, boy, they did a fine job on it. Oh, wow. Oh, this is long. Yeah, and it's got shrubs, and it's got trees, and it's got flowers. And, you know, so if you're building a hedgerow, Hey, go to the shrub section. Now, one of one of the plants that I understand is like one of the best honeys that you can get is is from black locust, oh, and yeah. black locust is of course one of the big permaculture uh, trees. Can I tell and... you my black locust story? Is it so, okay. so funny? We have black locusts down a, a few blocks from here. There's some black locusts, and Joseph wanted to do uh, coppice. You know, we heat with wood, and so he was going to plant a bunch of black locusts for two things. Um, he wanted to plant them for fence posts because they grow so straight and they last so long. We just put in black locust fence posts about four or five years ago. And he was saying, you know, okay, that's two generations from now. Somebody needs to replace them. So I need to be planting my black locusts now so that they'll be ready two generations away. <laughs> right, right. So he goes and gets them. In the meantime, I'm like, honey, they're covered with like thorns and, you know, like, I don't know if I want this. So we put them down the far end of the south pasture, and they've been growing for a few years. And I've had kind of a constant, I don't really want these things to, like, oh, no, they're putting up suckers, and they're going to grow more. And, and his idea was as we cut them off, we'll coppice them and, you know, make some more. And then all of a sudden I, I get more into my bees and start reading up on black locusts, which is a major bee flower. And then I'm like, honey, you know what? I was wrong. Let me just say that. I was wrong. <laughs> and I want you to go plant like 15, 20 more black locust trees down there. <laughs> and your goats, um, they can be up to 50% of the feed for goats. Wow. that's And, and if you put them in a paddock that has black locust and polyculture all over the place, um, they tend to go for the black locust first. That's great. 
Yeah. They don't seem put uh, off by thorns in the slightest. They're right now they've been decimating our Himalayan blackberry invasion and boy oh boy, they just eat those all day long. See now I, I think black locust doesn't have nearly as many thorns as, no, as it doesn't. blackberry. They're longer and more spare than they are for blackberries. Now, honey locust is a totally different story. <laughs> those, those thorns are amazing. In fact, here on my desk, somebody, uh, one, of, one of the permies, because I mentioned how much I enjoy this, one of the permies sent me a box full of these um, amazing honey locust twigs. Now, I had somebody else sent me a box where it was like just short twigs that didn't have the thorns on it. But somebody sent me this box of just the most beautiful and amazing thorns. Wow. So I'm looking at one thorn that's a good four and a half inches long. Yeah, I just Googled it on the images page and woohoo. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have any honey locusts here, so yeah, that's interesting to look at. Yep. I don't think I'm Hi, this is this is probably the only organic thing on my desk. Everything else is technology. <laughs> I've got this one little honey locust twig that is just this Ooh. this buffet of amazing thorns. Jeez, look at the thorns on those things. No climate in those trees. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'm at the end of the list. That was it. We got through the whole thing. I think that this was a magnificent collection of podcasts that we just made. That was really fun to do. Um, you know, I have not said a single thing about my website. I mentioned other people's, but I, I'm going to say it. If anybody wants to go sign up for my B newsletter, it's um, it, it's as wide ranging as my thoughts are, and I usually put it out a, a number, uh, probably half a dozen times a year, and it pretty much is about whatever it is I'm doing and whatever I'm thinking about, and I put a lot of pictures and sometimes videos in it too. Uh, it's spiritb.com, and you can just go sign up for the newsletter there. And my classes are listed there, too. And and uh, um, I should probably – it's been a long, so long since we've made a podcast with you and I. I should probably say that I met you when I was trying to um, uh, go to a Sepp Holzer event, and I believe it was 2009. Yeah, and you came and stayed here. You needed a place to stay, and we invited you to come out to the farm and stay with us. And so I, I stayed there, and then after the sepulcher thing was done, I stayed longer at your house yeah. because it was it's so amazing there. It was fun, huh? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and, and of course, I remember the very first moment where I'm supposed to pick a room, and you say you probably want this room because this other room is the one with the ladybugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it's like you told me, showed me the ladybugs were in the room. And it's like, no, I, I want to sleep with the ladybugs. <laughs> we, we keep so. ladybugs when they migrate. Uh, maybe not everybody knows this, but when ladybugs migrate, uh, and they if they choose your home to be one of their migratory stops, they'll all go to the northwest corner of the house. And they, you know, we have an old farmhouse, so, of course, there's plenty of entrances here and there. And they sleep for the winter. They they hibernate for the winter in the walls up there. So we actually keep that room closed off. We close the door. We don't heat it. We let the ladybugs be in there in their nice kind of coolish room all winter. And I tell people if you want to sleep in that room as a guest room, you just have to agree not to turn the heat on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was very cold, but I was fine with that. I, I was just glad to hang out with the ladybugs. Yes. And um, so uh, um, – and then – We've got, you know, and then we've got another podcast we've already recorded with you and Joseph, talking about everything else that's going on 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 your land, okay. um, and on your property. That's that's and, fun. And you know, I should probably mention too, I'm on the final stages of writing my book about honeybees that um, 
that will be out probably within the next, well, by late spring 2014. And you can be notified of that by signing up on my spiritbee.com website. I'll just send out when it's ready. So late spring of 2014 or 2015? 2014. I am on the stretch. So like a couple of months. Yeah, I'm on the home stretch on it. Oh, my. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I I you know I want to I've been to so many different farms and looked at so many different ways of keeping bees. And then um you know I, years ago I read a stack of books on beekeeping and um so I and I a lot of the farms I went and I visited before coming to yours they were all organic beekeepers or trying to be as close to organic as they could. And um, it just seemed to me like everything that you were doing was an order of magnitude beyond the best of those people. So I I kind of feel like, yeah, that the book you're writing is going to be critically important because um, while some of the things that you talk about are things that I've heard now, like I uh, uh, Joseph Holzer um, was – um, telling me you know, uh, what they do, which is very similar to what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and and so I think that the ideas are are out there a little bit, but boy, they do need to be in a very formal format, like a book. Yep, that's why I finally am doing this, and it, there's a few ideas in here that are going to, uh, I think, be topics for discussion for a lot of people. It's a a big view of of what bees are doing in the world, and I'm I'm just so in love with them that I I really want them to thrive. So, um, anything else? Got anything else to, to promote? Anything that you want to mention to my peeps? No, I think that's about it. That that was a wonderful conversation. What was that like? About six and a half hours. <laughs> it's a lot. I think it's going to have to be divided into four podcasts. Uh-huh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, um, uh. Anyway, all right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about honeybees, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Mm-hmm.